This is the Jocko Underground Podcast number three. Rebecca Charles and me, Jocko Willink, and joining us as the first guest ever on the Jocko Underground Podcast is, believe it or not, Dave Burke. Good deal, Dave. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. Good evening, Dave. So if you're new to the Jocko Underground Podcast, this is a... A, an, a podcast that complements the regular Jocko podcast. It's available if you join the Jocko Underground, which you can do by going to jockounderground.com. Well, look, we've, we're doing this for a few reasons. First off, most important, the Jocko podcast will remain as it is. That is free and available to the world. That's the goal. We always want it to be free and available to as many people as possible. That's what we're doing. But... We do have to be ready for some contingencies. There is there is censorship happening right now in the world, right? From social media companies to traditional media companies. Everything's at risk. Could podcast could podcast platforms be at risk? Yes, they could. So we have to do a little contingency planning. Look, I mean, we've been fine, but there is risk. The platforms have control and they can de-platform, right? Which is a scary thing. And we've seen it happen. Sometimes deservedly so, but that's a big question and debate is who gets to decide who deserves or not, right? Mm-hmm. So we don't like that. So we got to have a contingency. We would be fools not to have a contingency plan in case something like that happened. Also, we don't want to have sponsors other than things that we make mm-hmm. and we use and we own. That's what we talk about. So <laughs> I guess you have to put up with those at the end of the Jocko podcast because we're going to talk about some of that stuff. But that means we have control over those things, which means no one else has control over us. No one can say, we're not going to pay you your sponsorship money if you talk about that. Yeah. We're not playing that game. So the, the other thing is we also want to have a better, closer connections with some of the people that are really in the game. Because when we started this out, we were able to kind of respond to everybody that reached out and that we pretty quickly, maybe after a year, we couldn't really, it was just too much. Maybe six months, I forget how long it was, but it just became overwhelming and that would have been both of ours full-time job. We'd sit there and respond to things and find questions to answer. So this jockounderground.com kind of narrows that out a little bit because if you join, then we know you're a little bit more in the game and it, so that's what we're doing. So anyways, what, what's the topic of the day? Let's get to it. Topic of the day. We just recorded a podcast on the Marine Corps Field Manual. The Marine Corps Field Manual, which is called Competing. Now, that's why Dave's getting to be the, the first guest. Mm-hmm. Or getting getting or being roped into being the first guest. <laughs> so there's a there's a movie There Will Be Blood. Have you ever seen this movie? Yeah. Have you ever seen it, Echo Charles? Right now. Wait, there will be blood. There will be blood. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, what's his name? Da- Daniel Day Lewis. Yeah, Day Lewis. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. Daniel Day Lewis. He plays an oil man, right? And he's kind of a ruthless oil man, and he just runs things and ruthless businessman and doesn't care and makes things happen, and takes advantage of situations, and it's it's. But it's a great movie. There's one part in that movie where he's talking to his brother, which is actually not really his brother, which you find out in the movie. Spoiler alert, sorry, too late. He's talking to a guy that's an imposter. Is it? Do you still have to say spoiler alert if you're talking about a movie that's 20 years old? Or are you clear hot? It's considerate to, to say spoiler okay. alert. Okay, spoiler Usually alert. Usually before you spoil it. Yeah, okay, Because <laughs> okay, it alerts it. people yeah, to you to, about to okay. spoil the thing. So he's talking to someone that is his brother, allegedly. <laughs> Anyways, he says this line. He says, he says, I've I have a competition in me. I want no one else to succeed. I hate most people. <laughs> and the brother replies, he says, that part of me is gone, working and not succeeding. All my failures have left me where I just don't care. And then Daniel, which is the character that's played by Daniel Day-Lewis, says, well, if it's in me, it's in you, meaning I'm your brother. And if it's in me, this level of competition, if it's in me, it's in you. And then he says, there's times where I look at people and I see nothing worth worth liking. So he's obviously like a 
not a nice guy. But that line, I remember the first time I saw that line, I have a competition in me. I want no one else to succeed. I remember kind of sort of relating to that statement a little bit. And I still, I still kind of do because I have this strange like competitive thing inside of me that is very hard to subdue. And I know I've, I've said this to Echelon Front sometimes. I've been like, hey, you know why I'm up at four o'clock in the morning? Because I can't stop thinking about what we need to do to win. That's what, that's what I'm doing, that's what I'm thinking about. So, you know, and we, we started talking about this a little bit on the podcast, but Dave, I, I know that competition was inherent in your old job. What, how has competition evolved for you? How much of that state, when you hear, when you hear, you know, I, I have a competition in me, I want no one else to succeed. Did you ever think that? Do you still think that? Where's it at for you? Guess we're coming right out of the gate here. <laughs> hey, um, this is the underground, man. Totally, man. So, 100%. And I guess the evolution question can come back in a minute. Where does that evolve? I absolutely, I absolutely understand that. And I couldn't tell you when in my life, but definitely younger, definitely in a less mature place than I am now. Some natural sense of not just hating to lose, hating to lose hating to be outdone by other people. And I, and I just, even at a young age, like I understand that comment. Now, I, that character, that is a, that, that character is a, at a unique level that I don't think I've ever gotten to. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, of, co- of course I understand that. And I think there's an inherent thing of, for me, like the competition with myself is I hated not being good at stuff. I hated failing at things. I hated not being able to do things that I thought I should be able to do. And then if other people were able to do it, it bothered me, it drove me nuts. There is an absolute inherent competition in my previous job. Anybody in the military, I think, has that Top Gun. I don't know if it's any different than anywhere else, but it's definitely there, a Top Gun, for sure. But when you talk about the evolution of that, and I, I'm not implying that I didn't know that before, but that was, a, that was the first place that I really understood that the competition there, which is there, because what we were trying to do was so important outside of the organization is the first real time in my military experience where I was part of a unit or a squadron or, or a, a place that whose real responsibility was outside. You know, I, all through training, when you get into a fighter squadron, you kind of feel like your squadron is the center of the universe. And what you do for your squadron is for your squadron. And at Top Gun, what you're doing is actually for everybody else. So that competition, I think the maturity of me kind of moving past wanting other people to, to be successful or not wanting them to be successful. Top Gun breeds a lot of competition, but it's always geared towards making you better so you can be better for other people. And that, I think, helps with the evolution. Whatever DNA, whatever gene is in there of what he said, there's that's inside me mm-hmm. and it has been forever. Uh, he, he's a unique character. And yeah. obviously they, they portray him in that way as a ruthless guy. And I know the movie and I remember it vividly and what he go, the lengths he goes to. But... That sentence, that saying, I understand that. There's a there's a weird thing when I saw this movie for the first time. He, I, 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 re- I was totally into the movie. And then towards the end of the movie, or at the end of the movie, I, I just didn't get it. Because he ends up this alcoholic guy that's kind of acting like an idiot. And he ends up doing, he's just, it just, and I said to myself, I remember watching it going, wait a second. No one that's that much of a control freak that likes to win that much would ever go down this path where they just lose control and they become an alcoholic. I have to admit, and I don't, I don't, I don't remember when that movie came out, but I have since learned that things like alcoholism and drug addiction are more powerful than even that guy's will to win and his hatred of losing. Alcohol, as stupid as that might sound, will take somebody that's that much of a winner, or yeah, I guess that's a subjective term, somebody that's that obsessed with winning and will turn them into a loser, which is crazy. Now, this is what's interesting. You talked about the lengths which he would go to win. And this reminds me of at the muster, one of the muster, one of the musters, I was, I had a little section that was called winning at all costs. 
And it was kind of a setup. It was a setup. It was it was a setup of saying like, hey, and I kind of I kind of build to this point where I say I'm I will win I'm I win at all costs. That's what leadership. That's a matter of fact. That was the line. Yeah. I said something like leadership to me. Me it means all different kinds of things to different people, but leadership to me means winning at all costs. And I kind of went psycho, right? Winning yes. at all costs. Oh yeah, you put that in one of your clips, didn't you? Yes, but did. here's what's interesting, and actually the, this was kind of funny about that clip. So me me getting all fired up and saying winning at all costs. But that was all a setup. Because then what I talk about in that segment of the muster is that if you're really willing to win at all costs, what you need to be able to do is subordinate your ego. What you need to be able to do is listen to other people. What you need to be able to do is build relations. Like all these things that are contrary to what people would think winning at all costs would be. Mm. And I remember, like, uh, I think Jamie got some kind of feedback. Jamie at Echelon Front got some kind of feedback, you know, well, we're not sure if an attitude of winning at all costs is what we're looking for. And I think we had to send them more of the video so they could actually see what I was saying. Go, oh, it's a setup. So that's what's interesting, the way that if you really want to win at all costs, then it's not beneficial to hate most people. It's not beneficial to want to see other people fail. That doesn't help you win. Wanting to see other people fail doesn't help you win. If you really want to win at all costs, if you're really truly competitive and you want to make every effort to win, you will build relationships, you'll put your ego in check, you'll build coalitions, you'll let other people win. You'll, you'll do all those things if you really want to win, which is a lot different. Yeah, that um be honest, I was one of those people I was like, mm, that was kind of maybe a little too powerful, you know, too too aggressive, winning at all costs when you said it like And then I caught you. Yes. I and got, then I was I like, got, okay, got, I see what you're saying. Setup. Yep, you got me too. I was one of them. Um but it became clear, yeah, at all costs, like no, you not like because the first thing that comes to mind, I think anyway, is when you say winning at all costs, it's like, oh what? At the cost of your family and friends and health and like all this stuff or whatever. And then it's like, okay, it it's obviously not that. It's like at the cost of like all these like front end benefits and pleasures and whatever mm-hmm. that you might not want to give up a lot of the time, you know, like the ego thing and, and like short term sacrifice, all this other stuff. So I was like, oh, okay, all right, makes sense. Agree. Approved. Yeah, and I, I think that's where when, when I when I look back at my life, God, that sounds so horrible, doesn't it? Well, you made it sound better with the with the, t- the sound tone. effects. Yes. Yeah. When when I when I was thinking about how competition evolved for me in my life, I realized that what I think the positive transition that I would recommend people make is at some point in my life, and I it wasn't an overnight thing, but over a gradual probably year or whatever, some length of time, I recognized the difference between competing on a tactical level and competing on a strategic level. Mm. And when you make that transition, when you realize that winning and competing for this tactical moment to beat you in an argument or to beat you in this one microcosm ecosystem thing, that little tactical victory is actually just sort of lame compared to a strategic victory. So um, there's another thing from the muster is, you know, the, the guy that asked me, well, you know, how often should I be tr- thinking strategically? And I, once again, I kind of built, a, I kind of set it up. Sure. You like my little setup, Psycho Charles? <laughs> I kind of set it up where I started saying, well, you know, here's the thing about, the whole, and then finally I said, you know when you should be thinking strategically, you should be thinking strategically at all times. Mm-hmm. And that is the way, that is the proper way to view competition. If you get caught up in winning and competing at a little tactical level all the time, you're probably losing strategically, kind of like that guy Daniel does in There Will Be Blood. Blood. Yeah, even that, that when you said think strategically all the time, I was like, 
but you did you did an explanation beforehand so it wasn't <laughs> as powerful but but when i was making the clip oh, it i'm wasn't like powerful it wasn't very powerful <laughs> <laughs> making the clip i remember thinking okay this this has this runs the risk of being misunderstood in this small way mm-hmm. where you know how if you say hey that guy's thinking strategically all the time to me i think now anyway cuz when i hear thinking strategically to me that's like a good thing mm-hmm. it doesn't have the stigma of like ooh conniving guy always thinking you know oh, whatever yeah. but it could though uh, i never really thought of that context before yeah cuz yeah your your definition of it is not that it's all like good like good. big picture yeah, yeah. long term like yeah. you know the outcome are there people that think oh that guy's thinking strategic uh, and they mean it with a negative put it this way connotation I, Possibly, I I obviously don't know, but I put it this way: if you say I'm thinking strategically all the time, if if you say that, you do run the risk of sounding like, oh, you're always like got always some plotting. covert plotting. Yeah. Yes, exactly right. But all you got to just think about it for a second, if you understand what you mean by strategically, meaning long term, not short term, right? Strategic versus tactical. And if you're always thinking about the the outcome, the the grand outcome, mm-hmm. the long term stuff or whatever. Bro, you kind of better be thinking strategic everything diet exercise relationships your family kids like because bro that's a, that that it's always at play like your kids like your example of that helping them tie their shoes oh it's late it's we're, we're running late you know like this kid's taking 10 minutes to tie his shoes but we're like already 11 minutes late you know like, like that guy it's like all right well that's a Tactical win if we can make it on time or whatever, but strategically, it's like, man, he's one step not ahead as far as tying his shoes by himself kind of thing, you know? So it's like, man, that thing is always in play. So if you're always always thinking it, bro, you're, you're in the game. Yeah. Well, I, I think what you, you've said to me before that the biggest thing that you've kind of taken away from the podcast, from sitting across from me for hundreds and hundreds of hours is... Thinking long term instead of short term. Yes, at all, know, and which is the same as thinking things, tactically th- versus thinking strategic. Yeah. And, it, and if you think about the decisions that you make every single day, yeah. if you if you assess that right there, that's going to put you in oh, a man. totally different world. You, yeah, you'll. This is going to sound kind of lame too, but it's absolutely true. You'll be living a, a completely different life, completely, because they're all freaking at play at every moment. <laughs> And it's always a work because, like, by nature, we want this, the short term, you know, like in, a, in every capacity pretty much. I mean, unless we're trained out of it early on or whatever. But, man, you'd be surprised how often that that's in play. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, a lot of times people ask me, you know, like, what's the, you know, the, oh, what do they call them, $10 question that people ask. They think it's the big question oh, the when you're getting, no, it's not, it's, not, it's not that. It's the standard interview questions that you get these days. Everyone's looking for the little piece of oh, sound click bite, sound yeah. bite type thing. What's the one thing you want to told yourself back in, when you were, if you could go back and talk to your, if you could give one, you know, like all, that's just, they're just looking for a sound bite thing. Mm-hmm. But, but that's one of them mm-hmm. is think strategically at all times because you're right. If you start at a young age thinking strategically instead of thinking tactically, if you start thinking about long-term instead of short-term, you will be in a different place than if you do not do that. I've been thinking about this a lot lately because I've been writing, I'm trying to write some things down and get some things out of my head about what I've done in the past. We've talked about it quite a bit. Um, you know, the short-term gratification versus the long-term, you know, the, the tactical versus the strategic or the short versus the long game. I, I don't disagree with that. I, I, that wasn't actually my problem. I had a at, a, at a fairly young age, had a sense of like, hey, what I want to do is going to take me some time. And I knew, you know, for whatever reason, I, I don't want to give myself credit for it, but my struggle with this conversation, you know, this, this idea of competing and, and the thing we just talked about wasn't a sense of, did I know how to defer short-term gratification for the long-term win? The, the thing for me was evolving to what, what winning looked like, what being successful looked like was more than just myself. When it became about more than just me, whether it's my wife or my family or the team, that was the evolution that I struggled with. That I, I can't, I can't mark a date that I just woke up one day and go, "Oh, winning is my team winning. Winning is my family winning. Winning is other people being successful and my contribution to that." And my evolution, you know, I, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a fighter pilot, 
And there's a whole bunch of things you got to do. But at the end, all of that was about me. All of it was about me and what I wanted and what I wanted to do and what I had to do to get there. And one of the things that I had to do to get to where I wanted to be was actually outperform all of my peers. I had to do that or at least most of them. You know, I don't mean to imply that I was better. There, there was always people better than me, but from a straight competition standpoint, I had to do pretty well to get where I wanted. So this idea of thinking strategically isn't just the long game. It's also what's, what winning really is. And winning, and you tied this in at the muster, that, that full circle is how do you win? When your team wins, That's you will do whatever it takes for them to be successful. And the hard part for me was figuring out the best way for me to succeed as an individual is being the reason why the team wins. And then it'll come full circle. You'll get all those things for you. So, and it's probably different for everybody, but short versus long. I was, I've been playing the long game in my head for a long time, but the direction I was on in this, in this, and it's totally connected to ego. It's mm-hmm. the evolution of maturity and, and being humble was realizing, oh, winning is, is not, is not about me as an individual. Winning is way different than what I thought it was at a young age thinking, oh, I want to fly jets or whatever, whatever it was. That took me a lot of time. That humility took me a lot of time. And you know, it's, uh, I mean, it just shows you how your environment plays out on your thought process because you going to be a fighter pilot, which means you're going to be alone in a machine in the sky by yourself. And me going into the SEAL teams where you are a part of a platoon. And it's very clear from day one that the team comes first. In fact, that is my definition of like, oh, well, what's a good, what's a, what's a good team? A good team has people on it that put the team above themselves. That, that, that's such a good answer, and it's the truth. Mm-hmm. If you have, a, that's what a team is. And I, what you just said, that whole thing. Normally, when you're talking, I'm like, oh, I know where Dave's going with this, and I get where he's coming from, and I can see that. That actually was one of the first things you've ever said where I had a heart, I, I got it, I understand what you're saying, but I couldn't even barely relate to it because for me, right out of, you know, immediately, I mean, I'm 19 years old in SEAL training. There, you as an individual have no bearing. Like you gotta pass it, but if you, if you do something to negatively impact someone on the team, you're a bad person. If you compete to a point or you undermine someone or you sabotage someone, you're a bad person. You're not a good team player. So I got that message. Who know, It might have been different if I would have been in a highly competitive because being a fighter pilot is way more competitive than being a enlisted SEAL in a SEAL platoon. Like the, the things that you got to do to get there is way more competitive, way more competitive. We're part of a team. And look, as you know, in the SEAL teams, everything's a competition. We're shooting, we're running, we're drinking, everything's a competition. But man, you don't, you're not worried about yourself. And even giving the impression that you're trying to make a maneuver where you're gonna win, like something outside that platoon, like you're trying to, eh, that doesn't go over well. Yeah. And that's that's just a very, yeah, that's for me totally different, totally different. And the long-term versus short-term, hey, this is something else that comes. <laughs> I heard from one of my friends in boot camp that was also going into, trying to go into SEAL teams and he made us a freaking great guy. We both like rode the same bus down from Portland, Maine or whatever. And he he told me, he's like, yeah, I think I'm, I'm almost positive. It, it might have been one of the other guys in boot camp, but someone in my boot camp was like, 50% of SEALs don't make it to retirement because they die. They get wounded or killed. <laughs> this is not even close to true. This is not even close to true. There was no war. Well, I guess the Gulf War had, had started. But this is like just so not true. And we join up. And I was still like, okay, I'm down. If that's what it is, that's what it is. I'm ready. So you're signing up to be a part of that team. It's kind of, it's a different attitude. It's a different mindset. It's not about me and my machine yeah. the way it was for Dave <laughs> <There> <laughs> is, <laughs> Dude, it's, it's, it's an undeniable thing. Um, and this, even this format, this podcast, to be able to talk about it is actually kind of cool because 
um, there, there's an undeniable individual component of even just flight school. Just every, and this is not an exaggeration, literally every single thing you do is graded. Every single thing. So you do your startup procedures for the aircraft, graded. Graded. Each each event. Your inspection of the aircraft before you get in is graded. Graded. There's a thing on the grade sheet for that flight and it says pre-flight. And you get in a, you know, like a, a number or, you know, a GPA or whatever. And so there, there is something, I think, kind of an assimilation in your head of you individually are being evaluated. And the frame of reference that the instructor has or whoever is grading you has is all the other students. Not necessarily just the students in your class, but, you know, some of those instructors have been there, the civilians, or they've been there for 20 years. They got a, they got a database of 20 years of students going through and like, okay, this is how you perform compared to that. So you are, you have, there's, there's such a huge individual component to, you're talking about being 19. Bro, I was at OCS, you know, at 19. So when you're, when I'm starting flight school at 22, you're probably three years in the teams. And I am now, so everything I did from day one of TBS till the day I got my wings and then even nine months of training. So for probably four years, everything was me being assessed as an individual compared to my peers. And the squadrons that I were with was- hey, What with, about the basic school? Or what about OCS itself? Oh, because at OCS you were competing because you wanted that flight billet. That was TBS. OCS is, is kind of, uh, there's a little bit of different dynamic. OCS is very much kind of a pass fail. Like there's a threshold you gotta meet. They send a bunch of people home and they keep a bunch of people. Teamwork is emphasized? Absolutely. And, and listen, for anybody listening to what I'm saying, this is not to say that the Marine Corps doesn't make, doesn't reinforce from the gate. And it, it might speak even more to you know, why I as an individual resonate with that comment and what I had to learn over time and where in my career I learned that from day one, they're talking to you about the team, the Marine Corps. You know that you're in something bigger than yourself. You know that. The flying aspect, if you want to be a single seat fighter pilot in an F-18 Hornet or any other airplane out there, guess what? You are gonna spend a lot of time focusing on yourself. Now, if at some point you don't get the maturity and the recognition of what really you are a part of and what you are really contributing to, if you don't get that, what allows you to be successful as an individual earlier in your career will be a huge problem for you later in your career when you really are part of a squadron. You're there to teach and train and help other guys and run a team of Marines that has nothing to do with flying. And the guys that couldn't evolve past the you're being graded on this event and you're getting a score that's gonna determine your future. You couldn't mature and evolve and get humble and learn that. You could have done really well. We had a lot of guys that did well in flight school that struggled in the fleet. The fleet is is close to, you're gonna get to the teams. That's a real squadron, real Marines, real relationships. Prior to that, your training squadron, it's not really a squadron. You're there on a schedule. I, had, I was in one training squadron for five months. Intermediate jets, I showed up, I did three months of flying and I left. I didn't have any loyalty to that squadron. There was no sense of me contributing to that squadron being successful. It was all about you. It was all about me. <laughs> and that's that's 100% true. But even inside that though, there's a recognition that you have peers, you have classmates, you have friends, you have people relationships that are gonna help you study, help you get through difficult times that you might help. And there are still a whole bunch of of there's a whole bunch of external forces reminding you that the way to be successful is all the same things we talk about, building good relationships, all those things we talk about, they're there, but it's easy to, to kind of to be blind to that. And that really kind of comes full circle. What you're saying is that a whole bunch of tactical wins can still lead to a strategic loss. A whole bunch of tactical wins that you stack one on top of the other, on top of the other, on top of the other can still get you to be a strategic failure. There are guys that I knew that that did well in flight school. They got jets. They were flying Hornets out of Miramar on paper, very similar to me, that when they got to their fleet squadron, they got hammered. And it wasn't because they were good in the jet. It wasn't because they weren't good you know, pilots. It's because they looked out for themselves. And if you show up at a fleet squadron and you give this much of a hint of looking out for yourself, all the other dudes in the squadron are going to see that a mile away. And it will, it, it can... You can make a mistake in your first six months in a squadron that you can never escape. I mean, that that stigma can stay. If you get a stigma of being a one way, of being selfish, of being in it for yourself, it's really hard to get away from that if you show up and that's your reputation. How many uh, billets for an F-18, Marine Corps F-18 fighter pilot in a year 
out of uh, the the entire Marine Corps. So how many how many F eighteen pilot openings are there a year? Just broad oh, guess. Dude. Yeah. Okay. Let me just give me a second. So like people finishing flight school that go fly in my era go fly Hornets for the Marine Corps. Yeah. A year. Thirty. Thirty or forty. Really. Interesting. So I would say that's about. Maybe it's a little bit higher than that. It's no, maybe fifty. It's not. It's it's a. You know, if I go think about what went through the training squadron, you know, a class of eight guys, we probably did five or six classes a year. You know, that's forty-ish pilots. Yeah. So interestingly, that's probably a pretty similar number as the SEAL officer billets per year. It's probably around fifty total. Because I think they take they take X amount from the Naval Academy, X amount from ROTC, X amount from prior enlisted, and I think the total number ends up being about. I actually thought it was less than that. I think it was like thirty, but it's but it's probably bigger, thirty to fifty. Now enlisted side, it's kind of wide open. Like if you want to come in the Navy, and you well, it's, it's actually less open now, especially there because the we're not at war. Well, we're not at such a broad war as we were, so they're actually getting more stringent right now as we speak. Talking to my friends still on the teams, they're like, oh, there's less billets, there's less, we need less guys. Mm -hmm. Which is, so when I was saying that it took, that it was even more, uh, it was even more difficult to get into the Marine Corps to be a fighter pilot than it would be to get in the SEAL teams. They're probably pretty close actually. Like if you're at the Naval Academy and you wanna be a SEAL, it's really hard to get that billet. Yeah. You know, that that filter of, you know, my only frame of reference for the filter of getting into the the pipeline, you know, when I went to the basic school of a class of 250, you know, there were two billets for my class for if you weren't a pilot. Now, there was a bunch of guys that were already, you know, ordered to go down there. They were going to go. But that number, you, you know, you get, you get your fighter pilot. You get you get your fighter pilot out of the basic school. Not not fighter pilot, just flight school. Got where it. you you know where so, you get fighter pilot is by kicking ass. Yeah, in flight school. Basic numbers. If you're going to go be a pilot, of of about thirty percent will end up in tactical airplanes. Mm-hmm. You know, at the time is you know we had three or three tactical jets in the Marine Corps back in the day. It's only really one now, just because the time has changed, but. You know, for every ten pilots, you know, five would fly, five or six would fly helicopters, three would fly jets, and one would fly C-130s. Kind of just basic math, and that you know varied up and down. But you had about a thirty percent chance flying tactical jets, and of that thirty percent, you know, that probably end up meant that, you know, you had probably a fifty-fifty chance. So about fifteen percent of all the pilots are going to fly F-18s. So fifteen out of fifteen percent of people that say you're going to go learn to fly airplanes end up in the cockpit of a Hornet. This is dated. This mm-hmm. is obviously, you know, my mm-hmm. my era. That's a, you know, it's a small number and it's based exclusively on your individual performance. So it's kind of like in a way even for for comparative purposes. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, in when you're growing up, right, as a kid. So some there's individual sports. Like what did you play? Did you play sports in high school? Or whenever? Not really. But you played, what'd you play? Soccer and basketball. Yeah, so there's team sports and individual sports. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the individual sports is like wrestling. Mm-hmm. To, and they say it's a team or a wrestling team yeah. and stuff. And it's, it's true. Just, you're but going alone on that map, well, yeah, boy. As far as performance <laughs> goes, you're performing by yourself. You rely on your team for training. That's essentially it. You know, maybe some support or whatever. Um, wrestling, track and field. Um, unless you're on a four by one, four by four yep. kind of situation, but generally speaking, and cross then cross country, cross yeah. country, yeah. So individual sports versus team sports, and football, I think, is one of the better examples of a team sport because every single time you're relying on everyone else to do their job for you to be successful. You know, mm-hmm. kind of like a, a SEAL team. Mm-hmm. You know, you get the machine gunner, the you know, point man, radio guy. So Tact- versus tactical echo just showed up. <laughs> <laughs> Check, so, well, concur. Yeah. So, you know, and then versus Dave Burke in the, you know, by himself. Yeah, by himself. Like, <laughs> let's face it. Like, if the other guy fails, it kind of makes you look good, you know, in a way, kind of thing. As far as like, you know, what you go through. Football practice. You're you. They give you the ball if you're a running back, whatever. And you, one of your linemen fails, he's gonna make you look bad because he failed. You know, it's like that. That's how. 
rely like you got to rely on your team that much. So if you grow up playing football, like you kind it kind of gets ingrained in you like the a team dynamic, like the importance of that, you know, where you're doing your job. Sure, you want individual success. Yeah, you want to make touchdowns. You want to perform good for, you know, whatever, but you can't do that if you're like separating yourself. And this is like daily training and in games. So it kind of <clears throat> it kind of gets ingrained in you, which is kind of like I think your position, mm-hmm. where from the beginning yeah. there was no situation where like you secretly hope that guy fails. You're like, bro, what can I do to help yeah. you? You know, because man, if they fail, bro, you're getting you're getting tackled. That's Let's different for the great Santini over here. I know, <laughs> I know. I'm really but, glad I'm telling you all this stuff about. <laughs> yeah, but but that's not to say that individual sports don't have value because in a way they have more value in this way. Where performance-wise, if you fail, in per, like performance meaning like in a track meet or in a wrestling meet, if you fail, oh, it's all, it's all on you. Like, sure, you, you yeah. got to train good with your, your team, for sure. You got to do all that stuff, and you got to rely on them for training and stuff like that. But no, when it comes to game time, bro, you go out on the mat or freaking line up and, you know, well, on the track. Ch- check this out, Dave Burke. If you're in an aircraft by yourself and you get shot down because you made a mistake you're the one that pays the price yes, like sir. there's a there's a level of consequence there where you think to yourself well look I, I appreciate that I got the rest of the team members here I'm gonna be alone up in that aircraft and I better be freaking good yeah. and if I don't if I'm not good there's no one's got my back yeah. it's me exactly yeah I mean, look, there's a lot, there's a bunch of things to think about, and I'm thinking about this in real time as you're bringing it up. I mean, this, just the simple concepts that you've talked about before of individual freedom and individual responsibility, those, those things, I, that's what I, I was, that is, that is deep inside who I am, this, that idea. And, and I think it manifests itself. And there, there are people that, that love flying crewed aircraft. They love being with other guys. You know, helicopters got a crew and they all perform critical functions. I, I wanted to be alone in an airplane, always. I mean, that's what I wanted, that in, that sense of, I am individually responsible for all this. The consequences are dramatic. It's all on my shoulders. I am responsible for that. The, 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 the trick and part of why it's so cool for me to hear that, that Basically, every lieutenant at TBS listens to the Jocko podcast. <laughs> every student in flight school, I got guys that I stay in touch with that have reached out to me on social media because they're podcast listeners and they're in flight school. They're in the same primary training squadron I was in 20 plus years ago. They're there right now and they, they send me texts and stuff about how it's going in flight school. They're all listening to the podcast. And that actually is a really good thing because sooner or later, even the individual fighter pilot flying by himself in a jet alone realizes the reason you want to be really good as an individual is because you are going to make an, a massive contribution to the team. It's not so you could get some award or some ribbon or a Top Gun patch. It's that you there is going to be an outsized amount of expectation on your shoulders that you do something that's going to have huge influence on the team. And the sooner you figure that out, the sooner your brain recognizes, oh, winning strategic success is me contributing to something bigger than me. My Marines are more important than me. The sooner you figure that out, the better it is for you. You still need to be as good as you can possibly be, but it's not for you. That is a hard thing to break out of when you're in this continuum of individual achievement where everything is graded on your individual performance to get what you want. And I went through that. I understand that. But there there were a lot of forces at play. There's a young, immature kid who wanted to be alone in an airplane. And the freedom that I thought came with that, which, look, Jocko, I... Loved it. I loved it. That's the best thing in the world being by myself in an airplane. Yeah, you know, okay, so I finally was able to connect with some of what you're saying because it's been hard so far. Here's where. Check this out. I always had the feeling that if we were going on a patrol and I could either be in the back of a Bradley or in the back in, in, in a tank or some kind of an arm, armor personnel carrier, I didn't like that. Because now I'm reliant on, you know, these other people. Mm-hmm. And I love being on patrol. And, and if I'm on patrol, I dictate where I'm going to step. I can react when something happens. And so I really, even though I've got my platoon there and we're, we're working as a unit, but I have a much, much, much 
higher level of individual responsibility and control over my own destiny when I'm walking on my own two feet than I am when I'm in the back of a Bradley or, yeah, in the back of a Bradley or even in a Humvee where, look, the driver's driving, the gunner's gunning, I'm kind of like maybe, we're probably following the lead Humvee so I don't really have much control. I'm just a passenger and I never like being just a passenger. When you dive, when you dive you have a swim buddy. So one person called driving, which means they have the what's called an attack board, which is a compass, a depth gauge, and, and a watch. And it's telling you, okay, you're gonna fly this bearing. We call it flying even though we're swimming. So I don't wanna like, uh, you know, insult know. Marine what? Corps aviation. <laughs> but we call it flying. So we're flying, diving, swimming, and we swim a certain bearing for a certain amount of time. And the person that's driving has control over everything, literally everything. Most of the time, the buddy doesn't even know what the hell, doesn't even freaking have a clue where they're at. I despised, absolutely despised being a buddy. In fact, I was probably, I, I did hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dives in my Naval Special Warfare career. I was probably a buddy like nine times. <laughs> I would just do anything to not be a buddy. Yeah. Because now I have no control. I have no idea what's happening. I, I despised it. Absolutely despised it. So I appreciate now I can say when you that's when you started saying, hey, it's on me and I got this. Now I, I can relate to that feeling of, hey, I don't want to be in the back of a Bradley. I don't want to be swimming to some next to someone trying to keep up. And they give you some duties like, oh, you know, you gotta look out for Whatever overhead obstacles. There's no freaking overhead obstacles in the ocean. No, you're not swimming in anything. So it really is just a it's an it's an exercise in misery being a buddy. Now, now what's interesting too is there's some people that didn't want to drive because then you got all that responsibility. Now you got like, hey, now you're down there and you you got to figure out when when the compass starts spinning because the compass is affected by metal and in the ocean in the harbors there's all kinds of sunken ships and and you know rebar and all this stuff that throws your compass you just watch your your you could be diving and your compass would start to literally spin like it was possessed by satan and you had to figure it out you got to figure out what you're going to do am i am i right in saying that you is the is the lead flyer your success is measured by getting your buddy to where he's supposed to go too i mean <laughs> yeah. and and that's the piece of and i think that what you just described is is that's exactly right. That's you might go to once you're flying in a squadron, you don't like ever do anything by yourself. You're always with other airplanes, and there's always guys in there. There's always something much bigger than you, and that individual feeling of of that was. And I think the competition piece was. I think I just wanted whatever the burden that was going to be placed on somebody. I wanted it to be placed on me individually, and I felt much better there. And that what I wanted in my career connected to that feeling that I, I didn't, that feeling, I, I can't describe why I feel that way. I don't know if it was from birth or whatever, I don't know what happened, but that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted. And that took me in, in that direction. And this is no hit on guys that fly two-seat airplanes or guys that fly crude airplanes. It, they're guys that are incredible that, and they thrive on that and they do really well. It just, it, it just was not what I wanted. But the connection to why you're doing it, it's for that exact same reason, is I gotta get this guy there. Either he's gonna get me there, I'm gonna get him him there. This is the way I prefer it. <laughs> That's also a real altruistic way of looking at it because even though being a, being a buddy is so horrible for me that I's never wanted to do it. Not, yeah, I wanna get the guy there, but I also don't wanna be that guy getting dragged no. along and kicked with fins and it just sucks. What's yeah. the, technically, what's the job of the buddy? Like, well, when you're, when you're underwater, if, you, if you're driving, if you're, the, if you're the pilot and you have a problem with your dive rig or there's all kinds of things that can happen underwater, if you're alone, you would just die. So he's essentially like a, a spotter? He's essentially, oh, a, yeah, a, a safety, he's essentially your safety. Gotcha. He's your safety mechanism. Yeah. And so if you pass out because your rig has a problem, he's going to bring you to the surface and save you. But does he have any like moment to moment like actual jobs? Like what if what if you just fly a perfect flight as it were? He's uh, he's useless. hanging on to the pot. He's he's kicking as hard as he can. The body posture that you have when you're when you're flying cuz the attack board and the way you're situated you can it's you're much more efficient because you're a couple you're you're he's kind of back over your shoulder 
he's like maybe two feet to the right and two feet behind you. So over your right shoulder, he's behind you, two feet to the right and two feet above you. And so you're kind of efficient and he's gotta like, these little adjustments, he's, he's actually, he's getting kicked by you because he's back by your fins and if he goes down a little bit, you're kicking him. <laughs> if, if you go down a little bit, he just follows you, right? Yeah. And so, it's just an exercise in misery, to be quite. Yeah, and I dig it for sure. But I'm trying to trying to figure out the whole the whole dynamic. Okay, so let's say you have a perfect quote unquote flight, right? Mm-hmm. You happen to have mm-hmm. whatever your thing is, and then mentally, if you were to compare, like, oh, what if my buddy wasn't there that whole time? Would it make that much of a difference at it would all? Make zero difference. Oh, okay, so in fact, in fact, in fact. If you could guarantee that you weren't gonna have any issues with your rig, it would right. be a thousand times better not to even have a buddy. Okay, I don't there even you want go. this guy there. Okay. Now sense. I will say, eventually, if the times I was a buddy, I eventually figured out, oh, you know what? I would make my own little attack board. I'd make a really small one so I could still kind of fly. But it's not necessarily, you, you can't get distracted by it because you do have to pay attention. You can't just like start pulling this guy off in another direction. But I would kind of just for the body, just just to get the body position right, because mm-hmm. the body position when you're holding an attack board, you can kind of steer your with your attack board. You can kind of just move it up and down the water right, and right. It, can, it can make you gain altitude or lose rider. altitude yeah. or depth, I guess, since we're not flying because <laughs> we're not F-18 pilots. Ew. But the weird thing is, is that there's people with a personality Mm. Of I hey I'll be the buddy and guess what those guys I'd always be like hey you want to be my swim like this whole five week dive course why don't you and I just be together yeah you can just be a buddy and I'll just be a driver but bro that's perfect right it's perfect where yeah like we where like your position because okay I was gonna I'm trying to determine like in your particular situation buddy and pilot or whatever mm-hmm. it's like okay that's obviously a team dynamic yeah. you know smaller yeah. or whatever but it. It changes a little bit. Where it's like, you know, you consider the president and the vice president, mm-hmm. right? The president lives. So the vice president never becomes president. But he has so many other jobs, he or she or whatever, has mm-hmm. so many jobs. You yeah, know, like yeah. where they're they're working in. If, the, buddy if that person, have, the buddy doesn't have a bunch of other jobs. Exactly, it's right. Just so super it's super whack. a safety mechanism. It's like, a, um, like an airbag or something. But here's the deal. If Dave and I were in the same platoon, we would not pair up. Because he would want to drive, I would want to drive. Exactly. I'd be like, bro. This ain't, this is no, yeah, like, yeah. that's not happening. Exactly. Why don't right. you go with Fred over there and Fred just wants to be a buddy and he just doesn't mind sucking it up and it's all good. Yeah. And, and that's, yeah, it's kind of like when you're going somewhere and the person who just loves to drive the car and the yeah, other guy yeah, who that's just, weird. Right, I'm just going to cruise in the yeah. thing. I might fall asleep. Isn't that strange about me? Yeah. You don't like, you don't, I don't drive. like driving. Yeah. I don't drive. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, what about you? What do you do, Dave? Do you drive? Dude, <laughs> I got the call just the other day. Uh, Jen, who manages, you know, we're on the road, and there's three of us going to work with the client, and she's like, "Who should I give the car to?" I said, "Anybody but me." Like, I, I, so, uh, I, there is, I think I'm with you. Like, there are there are times when it when when that makes sense for me, and there's times that it absolutely does not. Yeah. And I don't make <laughs> yeah. any connection all between flying fighters and combat and yeah. renting the car. I don't want any of that. I'll sit in the back in an Uber. Yeah. I'll get things done. I'll do whatever. Yeah. Um, so there's there's no connection. But dude, this is an awesome. I mean, this topic and just the the conversation about it. And, you know, it, what's what's spinning in my head this whole time, it, the connection I'm making uh, about myself is, you know, maybe it's maturity, but it's ego. It's it's strategic success. You you won't even know to think about it if your ego is not in check. If you don't have this sense of humility of, oh, wow, dude, there is something so much bigger than me that I have to recognize that what I'm doing is bigger than me. And think about how hard that is as an individual yeah. to come to that point in your life. And I love hearing you tell the stories because I'm thinking about Dave Burke at 19 and you're you're in the teams. It's like, man, that's that is a that is an unbelievably cool life exposure to bro. This is not about you. This is not about you. How many 19-year-olds are living in a world where that's the message they're getting? It's it's not that common. And so you typically see that exposure, that strategic understanding happen later. And if you're not careful and if you're listening to this, that's a lesson you can learn anytime. And the sooner you figure it out, the better. You know, if you want to talk about thinking strategically, the world is bigger than you and you if you're going to win in the long run, it's going to be about other people. Yeah, that's the the that was what I wrote down while you were talking. I wrote down ego. 
Mm -hmm. <laughs> I wrote down ego because that that transition that I made, when people don't make that transition in the SEAL teams to go, oh, wait, my ego is less important than this platoon, they don't last. Yeah. It's a problem. Or maybe they last, but they do it barely and they have a bad reputation and, and all those other terrible things. And you'll never, well, when you think strategically versus tactically, in order to do that effectively, 70% of the items that you'll focus on the tactical, 70% of the time it's because of your ego. <laughs> 70%, maybe 80%, maybe even 90%. Look, sometimes you just can't see it. Sometimes you can't decipher between, wait, hey, is this gonna, where's this play out in the long run? Sometimes there's some kind of immediate gratification that's something other than your ego, but 80% of the time, 90% of the time, 70% of the time, a bunch of the times, why have been so big, big on percentages? <laughs> a bunch of the times, it's because your ego will not allow you to take a tactical loss in order to win strategically in the long term. And that is where competing, if we don't, if, if we don't recognize what the competition is, because what is the competition? Is the competition to win this little situation that I'm in right now? Or is the competition to win in life? And that's what it really boils down to, win in life. And if you can win in life, if you can have that broad goal way out there of what it looks like to win in life, if you, you know, that's, you've heard me tell the story about um, being a young SEAL and being like, I wanna be a good SEAL, that's what I want. What do I want in life? I wanna be a good SEAL. What, do, what am I trying to do? I'm trying to be a good SEAL. That means I'm making all kinds of decisions about trying to be a good SEAL. Dictating, it's dictating all of my, now look, I didn't always make the right decisions because sometimes I didn't really understand what a good SEAL was. If I would have had a clearer picture, I would have been a better SEAL. So if you can figure out what it is that you're trying to do long-term, down the road in, I hate to do the five-year plan and the 10-year <laughs> plan, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about who do you wanna be? And if you know who you wanna be, you can make so many good decisions, strategic decisions instead of tactical ones. And oftentimes, that will come at a little taxation to your ego. And if you don't wanna pay the taxation to your ego, soon that IRS one day is gonna come, <laughs> they're gonna mop you up and leave you with nothing. So be careful. I think that's a good place to stop. Anything else? All right, so uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for supporting the cause on the underground. As always, you can get the you can get the, the supplements from jockofuel.com. If you subscribe to any supplement, shipping is free, which is cool. Jockofuel.com, jujitsu gear, jeans, boots, clothing from originmain.com. You can get stuff to represent on the path, as Echo Charles likes to say. It's true. From jockostore.com, written a bunch of books on leadership you can check out, kids books too. Leadership Consulting, Dave and I, we're there, echelonfront.com, on the interwebs. Dave is at David R. Burke, Echo's at Echo Charles. I'm at Jocko Willink. Thanks for joining us on the underground. And until next time, this is Dave, Echo, and Jocko. Out.